Episode 9 of the Goddess Archetype Code Podcast. Inanna demands the throne. Really? And what happens next? In the last episode, I left you with Inanna descending through the seven gates. She had each of her possessions taken from her at each gate, and we used the chakra system to unpack what the meaning is behind each of these possessions. What do they represent on the healing journey? So arriving in the underworld, Inanna meets her sister Eresh Kigal, her shadow side. And in spite of losing everything, she still demands Eresh Kigal's throne. I mean, really, Inanna? You just went through the removal of all the things that gave you identity. And now you want her throne? You just don't get it, do you? You are listening to The Goddess Archetype Code with your host, Erica Randolph, an intuitive counselor and licensed trauma therapist. I use story, music, and meditation to support emotional healing. Disclaimer, this podcast is not intended as therapy. Looking for the light, it's a daily fight and things go bump in the night. The news of the day is outrageous, that's what the mad folks say. Who told you that you had sinned? We are divided, divided within. So welcome to episode 9 of the Goddess Archetype Code. So we left Inanna last week as she arrives to the underworld She is stripped bare of everything that gave her outward identity, and yet she still demands the throne. When we go down into the dark night of the soul or the underworld to meet our shadow, we've lost all our defenses going through the gates and having our sovereignty or sense of control squashed, our self-deceptions and vulnerabilities exposed, our egos crushed, our mother wound unmasked, and our primal instincts laid bare. And yet we still try to control the shadow. We still think we have the right to take her throne. It isn't until the shadow destroys us and we incubate like a chrysalis, metamorphosing in total release, in total surrender, that we can finally erupt into the butterfly and we can manifest radical self-love. So what does it take to connect with our shadow? Inanna went through the gates, losing all the parts of her identity, and then still had the temerity to demand Ereshkigal's throne. Well, this is the final surrender, the final inner knowing that we do not control the shadow, Or another way we can say that is we do not control our emotions. I know you've heard that we're supposed to work through our emotions. What does that even mean, right? Saying the word work implies we're supposed to actively do something about emotions. 
But that's not quite right. Yes, we have to go through our emotions. And this means we need to feel them, accept them, and to experience the depths and accept it as it washes over us. I like to compare an emotional experience with going through a wave on the beach. Imagine being on a beach at the ocean, or maybe on the shores of the Mediterranean. It's a beautiful sunny day. The breeze is just right. There are puffy white clouds in the sky. And you decide to walk out into the water. In the first few steps, the water is shallow. The sand feels nice under your toes, and so you venture out a little deeper. The waves gently wash up against you and pull back out. It's a rocking motion, and you begin to get your sea legs under you. So you dare to venture out a little deeper. And then a boat goes by and creates a wake. It kicks up some bigger waves. You may be deeper in than you realize, and suddenly a wave crashes over your head. You are blindsided by the wave. You can't see. People were all around you on the beach and in the shallows, but now it feels like you're all alone. The wave has blinded you and filled your ears with water. You can't see or hear and you feel the sand slipping under your feet, and the salty water is surprisingly stronger than you imagined. You splutter and wonder if you'll be able to keep your footing. You wonder, will your head ever come back up again? Will you ever breathe again? Blinded, you can't hear, you can't breathe, and your feet are slipping in the sand beneath you. All you taste is the salty seawater. Maybe you even fall down because the wave is so strong and you wonder, am I drowning? I can't breathe, I can't see. The water is heavy, it's suffocating, and it feels like the wave will never end. But the wave retreats. Its intensity releases its hold on you and it goes back down. It's surprising and almost funny how the intensity subsides so quickly. And you're left sitting in the sand with a few gentle waves rocking you back and forth. You wipe the sea out of your eyes and spit the salty water out of your mouth and take a deep breath. A breath of relief. A breath of wondering what was that all about. And you exhale, letting the stress and anxiety out. You wonder, how long was I in that wave? It might even feel like you're waking up again, waking up to your purpose, your meaning, your truth. This is exactly what emotions can be like. They can come up unexpectedly, strong and overwhelming. Emotions can feel suffocating and like we'll never not feel this way. Like we'll always be angry or depressed or hurt. And there is no end in sight. And because we're suffocating and blinded and we can't hear, and our foundations of what we've always believed in, what we thought was true, and what we taught was taught is being shaken and we're stuck. We're blinded by the wave of emotion and feel alone. It seems like no one else can truly understand what these overwhelming emotions can feel like. 
the sand slipping under our feet, our very foundations of who we think we are. What we've always believed about ourselves and others seems to be slipping away. The question can come up, who am I really? We might ask, what is our purpose? What meaning does our life have? Well, just like the waves on the ocean, we have no control over our emotions. Every time we have an emotional experience, we have the opportunity to feel deeply, to hear the messages and teachings these emotions have for us. Every emotion, especially the overwhelming, super hard, and even scary emotions, have a teaching for us. They have messages about who we are and what's going on for us. But also, like the waves on the beach, emotions always flow back out. They release their hold on you. They change. They ebb and flow. This is why they say don't make important decisions when you're in the midst of a strong emotion. You may regret it later. But the huge takeaway is that emotions always ebb and flow. They come up and take over, and then they wash back out to sea. They return to our unconscious, and we go back to regular life. So back to the question, how do you work through emotions? The work is to surrender to the wave of emotion as it crashes over you with its own intensity. Your job is to learn to breathe through it, to allow yourself to lose your footing and sit in the sand, to trust that you will make it through because the waves always go back to the sea. So how do we surrender in real life to an emotion? How do we release the dark side of the chakras like we talked about in the last episode, and truly experience on the deepest level each emotion. This is when we choose to cultivate awareness and attention to listen to the message it wants us to know. And here's where we leave the wave analogy, because our emotions always have a message for us. Within your emotions is the voice of your shadow. We can say that emotions are your shadow parts. When emotions take control of you, especially the overwhelmingly difficult ones, the embarrassing ones, like your anger, your fear, your depression, your sadness, the ones for which all your defenses come out, these are shadow parts coming out, letting themselves be known letting you know that they're still there. And all your attempts to explain them away, shut them down, and make excuses or ignore them just didn't work. So these emotions, or our shadow parts, have messages. They want to tell you about the unfairness of life. They want you to know how bad it is. They also want to help you and to warn you and to keep you from doing things that might harm you. Or, on the other hand, to continue doing self-destructive things so you don't see or address what really is the problem. Listening to our shadow parts is the work of working through our emotions. What happens when we begin to listen to our shadow parts? Well, one thing we begin to understand is that our shadow parts are not the same as who we essentially are. 
When we listen to what they say, we realize these are internal messages that we play over and over again. The messages, often from our childhood, tell us if we're good enough, if we're valuable, or if our lives make any sort of difference in the world. So when we truly let our defenses down and allow curiosity in our hearts about the shadow parts, when we wonder what they have to say and wonder what is their message and listen to their pain, this is when we can begin to heal from our own legacy of trauma, our own legacy of internalized messages about our worth. So Anana dies and Ereshkigal hangs her body on a hook. It hangs there for three days. This is Inanna's incubation period. It's a total surrender, a death to who we thought we were, our identity, what we thought we knew, what we held on to, our justifications, our denials, everything we grasped onto. It's an understanding that our defenses will not let us meet the shadow. By the way, here's a little tip for you. Whenever you feel yourself becoming defensive in an argument or conversation, it usually means your shadow is being triggered. And this is an opportunity to take note of what's happening to you. Stop and analyze what might be getting triggered for you. So what is happening as Inanna transforms within the chrysalis? Inside the chrysalis, there's no beginning, no end, no ambition, no past, no future, just the nowness. Nothing from her past is with her, not even her name. But know this, so she dies a death, a death of who she must be and will become and how she will be reborn. Because no one is the same after confronting their shadow self. No one returns from the underworld the same. When you look into the eyes of a mirror, you are looking into Ereshkigal's eyes. And you can never go back to the innocence, to the self, to the small self-absorbed person you were. You can never go back. But you see, while Inanna is on the hook, some amazing things are happening within the chrysalis. Her hollowness is filled with divine ecstasy. Inside that chrysalis, she is spinning and laughing and dancing her way into a new her. But you can't see that from the outside. But Inanna is doing what she needs to do. So let me read to you the next part of the story of Inanna's descent as reimagined by the Red Moon Mystery School. And I'll put the link to their website in the podcast notes. So here we go. Meantime, Ninshubur is up there on the surface. Remember, Ninshubur was her best friend that she made an agreement with. So she's been watching the clock, and she knows three days and three nights have gone by. So she gets her sackcloth of grief and starts wailing. She starts to lament and beats her drum, because beating a drum entrains the culture. 
Do you know that when people beat a drum, it entrains us because the sound of a drum is like a heartbeat. And there's a certain rhythm that gets everyone to think and feel the same. We don't drum so much anymore, but until recent times, people drummed to entrain each other. That's what Ninjabar is doing. She's entraining the culture to notice that something has happened. And people notice, they wonder what's up. These, by the way, on the side note, this is all the parts inside of us. So Ninjabar tells them, oh, our great queen has gone to the underworld and hasn't returned. And so really, the whole culture is beginning to be motivated around this crisis. Ninshabar goes to the first father and says, Father Nana, Father Nana, Inanna has gone to the underworld and she hasn't returned. What shall we do? It's a terrible thing. And he says, Inanna? Well, she wants to be queen of heaven and earth, and she takes everything of value from heaven and earth. And now she wants the underworld too? Well, <laughs> that's like the girl who eats her tofu and does yoga and wants a deep experience too. It's not my problem this happened to her. So Ninjabar thinks, well, you're not going to be much help. I'm going to get a second opinion. I'm not buying that. So she picks up her drum, straightens her sackcloth, and proceeds to beat that drum and carry on. She wails and she demands attention. She's going to keep her agreement. And she goes to the next father, Anru, and says, Anru, Anru, Inanna has gone to the underworld and she hasn't come back. Can you help me? And he says, what do you want me to do? Inanna has a degree. She's read many books. She chose poorly. It's not my problem. Let her have what's been dealt to her. I'm busy. Off with you. Ninshabar straightens her sackcloth and beats her drum and says, I'm getting a third opinion. And she beats that drum, wailing and carrying on until she meets Father Anki. She goes to Anki and says, Father Anki, Inanna has gone to the underworld. And Anki says, Oh, dear, 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 that daughter of mine. And he sits down and says, Tell me what happened. And he sits and he listens. And while he listens, he's cleaning his nails. And as he does, she tells him the whole story. He listens very carefully, with his belly ear probably. Ninshabar says, how can you have been cleaning your nails at a time like this? Have you no compassion or concern for my friend, your daughter, Inanna? Oh, indeed, he says, but things are not what they seem. And he took the dirt from his right hand and the dirt from his left hand, and he made two little creatures named Galatur and Kubara. They were flightless, sexless, little unseen creatures and allies to the warrior. Every warrior has an ally. No other archetype gets one, just the warrior. And so the birth warrior always has allies. Enki said to them, 
You need to go to the underworld and do this. You need to go to the seven gates. It will be dark down there. You will find a woman there, in labor, writhing on the floor. You must not be afraid of her. You must give her compassion. When she cries out that her back is hurting, rub her back. If she cries out she needs something, give her whatever she needs. Be empathic. She is very powerful. She will offer you the fields of grain. Do not take them. She will offer you the water from the Tigris. Do not take it. Only take the corpse of Inanna. Go now. And they flew off to do exactly what they were told. A very important thing. A side note here I want to bring in. Ninshubar consulted with the father figures and was advised what to do. I suggest that the father gods are our inner animus. It's an archetypal part that brings a quote-unquote masculine perspective. In Jungian psychology, the animus represents the inner masculine. And often it is a challenge for women to get in touch with their inner animus, just as it is for men to get in touch with their inner feminine or their anima. In Jungian analysis, these terms, masculine and feminine, do not represent gender or sex, but rather a set of characteristics. Both men and women have degrees of these characteristics. And we'll go more deeply into the topic of the anima and animus when we discuss archetypes in future episodes. Okay, back. So they went through so very quietly, and they were so very small. They went past Neti, right past the seven gates, until they soon arrived at their destination, deep, deep, deep in the heart of the underworld. There they found Ereshkigal in labor, on the floor doing just what they had been told she would. Soon she said, Oh, my back! And they said, Oh, your back, your aching back. And she said, Oh, my liver, my ruptured liver. And they said, Oh, your poor liver, your poor aching liver. Oh, my heart is breaking, my heart is breaking, for no one has seen me. Oh, they said, your breaking heart, your poor heart. And Ereshkigal was so amazed that someone had finally seen her and not judged her and given her what she needed that she said, Who are you? Where did you come from? And they could not explain this to her. So she said, What do you want? I must reward you. Take from my rivers of gold. They said, We do not wish to. Would you like the water from the Tigris? She then offers. No, no, we do not wish to. In surprise, Ereshkigal asks, What do you wish then? We wish to take Inanna. At this, Ereshkigal almost laughs. That? You want that? Have you gone mad? No, we want the corpse of Inanna. And she says, Fine, take it if you wish. 
So they took down the corpse of Inanna, and they restored her with the water and the breath of life. Then they helped her through another winding course, an ascent through the same labyrinth, the same seven gates. She had to ascend, no longer the same woman who came to the underworld, but rather another, stronger, a more self-aware woman, a woman who knows her shadows and misgivings, for she has stared at the worst of herself and has cast had the cast of death put upon her and has embraced the deep transformation that has carried her through to the other side. So let's take this apart a little. Anana descends through the gates, losing everything that gave her identity, and yet still believes she has the right to take Ereshkigal's throne. But none of her defenses work. Her powers of persuasion her anger, her justifications, and her alibis. She is powerful, powerless, rather. <laughs> Sorry, she is powerless before her shadow. Arishkagal is strong and gives her the eye of destruction. So Inanna used methods that do not work with the shadow. She demands the throne, but her persuasion, anger, justifications, and alibis do not work with the shadow. Well, what does work? We have a clue with the little creatures, Galator and Kubara, that Enki sent to the underworld. He told them they need to not be afraid of Ereshkigal and to be compassionate towards her. That's a clue, a big clue, being compassionate. So with compassion... Inanna, after she's hung out to dry, she begins to transform. She's learning to live in the now, learning to release expectations, learning to embrace compassion for her shadow. This is deep work. The, dirt, the work we do in the chrysalis as we go deeply into our emotions and incubate until we come out the other end transformed into butterflies. An important part of the story is that she has Ninshubur as her advocate. When we descend into the dark night of the soul, when we go to meet our shadow, it is helpful to have someone on your side, an advocate or a guide. This is, of course, where I offer you my services to help you navigate through your healing process. This is my role in many women's lives. If you're looking for help to get through your dark night of the soul, please reach out. You can schedule a time to chat with me on my booking page on the Goddess Archetype Code website. In this next episode, we will dive deeply into the little creatures, these warrior allies. What do they represent? What can we learn from them about how to understand and reconcile with our own shadow side? By embracing compassion in the meantime thank you for listening to this episode of the goddess archetype code podcast a podcast that combines the mystical or spiritual with the science of psychology to support your emotional healing if you got this far give my podcast a like and a thumbs up and please follow for more episodes of myths music and meditations.
Have a blessed day. Looking for the light, it's a daily fight, and things go bump in the night. The news of the day is outrageous, that's what the mad folks say. Who told you that you had 